invite you to turn with me to the book of 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1. If you have a pew Bible, you'll find this on page 1014. You've joined us in the second week of our series called Labeled. We're looking at gospel identity through the names and labels that were given in the first chapter of this book. Our title for this morning is I Am Elect. I Am Elect. This is a a topic and teaching and doctrine that has been quite controversial throughout the history of the church. I'd encourage you, if you want more information on this, to look at our blog this week. We've posted a couple of sermons on there, as well as a a blog post from me. I've given you, I think, nine reasons as to why we should love, celebrate, treasure this doctrine of election. Far more to say than we could ever get into in one sermon. In this sermon, we'll stick to the text and preach what this text has for us. But if you would like more information, uh, please do go to the blog this week. Now though, let's give our attention to this section of God's word. 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that in these moments you would come, you would speak, you would be our teacher, and that as we hear your voice, as we hear from you, we would praise you, that we would say hallelujah that you would be our delight and our reward be with us in these moments lord to make them worthwhile and not just for time but indeed for eternity in jesus name amen well good morning third service um first service for you i i presume maybe some of you are super holy and like stay for a couple services or go to another church first i don't, I don't know but this is not the, the first service for me this is the third service and and sometimes people ask me what's it like preaching three services um and i always say it's great preaching three services i i love to preach preaching is great preparing is hard work you know preaching is uh, you know i'll preach for free okay you have to pay me to prepare right um <laughs> Which is a thing you really want to do, okay? You know, you get over here. Um, and what's interesting, and people sometimes ask, you know, well, are the sermons different each hour? And I always very consistently say, uh, no, actually, um, we believe in the Spirit leading, but we believe very much that the Spirit leads in preparation. And so, by the time we come to Sunday morning, I normally have a kind of four to five page outline that means each service is, is very similar. Each sermon is, is very close to being kind of word for word what, what the previous service had heard. Um, and then there are Sundays like this one. Sundays like this one where you prepare your sermon and you kind of feel you have all the pieces of the jigsaw. And then you put them all together, and it just didn't, it kind of felt ugly, right? Um, sometimes you describe it like, uh, you know, you had all the items of clothing, but you put them on in the wrong way, <laughs> right? Um, sermons where you feel the Lord leading you in a slightly different direction. A direction that I hope and pray is very much connected to the text. But a sermon that's different to where we went in the first two. I want to begin this morning by telling you about a boy whose name was Emilian. 
Emelian, which means excellent. That good name? Excellent. Circumstances of his life, though, gave him another name. The circumstances of his life gave him the name Orphan. And it wasn't long until the Romanian government gave him another name, another label. They called him Irrecoverable. They literally stamped that word in red ink across the front of his file to ensure that anyone who came into contact with him, anyone who had any experience of him, anyone who would be in relationship in any way at all, before they even opened the book, before they even opened the file, they would see that he was irrecoverable, that he was beyond the pale, that he was without hope. In 2007, Romanian Christian Enterprises got a hold of him. Having languished for years in one of Romania's desperate state orphanages, suffering years of neglect, years of abuse, they found him. And they took him into their own orphanage and they began to look for a family for him. Despite their very best efforts though, and despite the heartbreaking prayers of the wee boy himself, no family was found for him. His name, Irrecoverable. I wonder this morning if his story, yes, perhaps in a grand way, perhaps in a a dramatic way, resonates with you. Resonates because you yourself have experienced some level of rejection. Some level of being unwanted. Perhaps in your home as a child with a, a father who is absent, a father who is distant. Perhaps it's in your home as a child with a, a mother who is always disappointed, a mother who is always disapproving, leaving you to feel rejected. Perhaps it wasn't in your home like we talked about last week. Perhaps it was, perhaps it was on the playground. Perhaps it was amongst that initial peer group. You just weren't the one who fit in. You were never going to be the popular kid. Growing up with a sense that you don't quite have what it takes. You don't really have much to offer. Perhaps it wasn't on the playground. Perhaps it's been as as an adult. Friends who should have been there for you, who weren't. A spouse who should have loved you, but gave you the name divorced. Or perhaps it's as a believer in Jesus Christ. As we continue to move into this culture that is, perhaps we could say, increasingly hostile to Jesus. Perhaps you've started to feel a sense of isolation. Perhaps there are discussions in the office that make you feel a little ostracized. Perhaps you're finding yourself in more and more situations where you're not quite sure how to be. You're not quite sure what to say. There's this general feeling of being rejected. The good news for us, you ready for some some good news? Christians have always been rejected. Christians have always been rejected. And we see this in 1 Peter itself. Look with me at some of the examples. In verse 6 of chapter 1, we read that the believers have been grieved by various trials. Flicking over verse 21 of chapter 2, we read that they had been called to suffer. Called to live in a world where if they lived as faithful followers of Christ, they were then guaranteed to suffer. Verse 16 of chapter 3, we're told that they were reviled for their good behavior. 
When they lived in a way that brought honor to Christ, it brought shame upon them in the world's eyes. Verse 4 of chapter 4, you see it there? They were maligned when they refused to go with the flow. When they swam against the streams that were popular in their day, in their culture, they found themselves maligned for it. Or look, verse 14 of chapter 4, we read that they were insulted for the name of Christ. Christians have always suffered. And so, is it any wonder, is it any surprise that Peter begins this letter and calls them exiles? Exiles. Literally and figuratively true for them. Refugees, a people without a home, isolated, ostracized. Christians have always been and always will be, in a sense, rejected. So what does God have to say about that? What does God have to say about that? He has something beautiful to say about it, and it's in the very fifth word of this text. Look with me. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect, to those who are elect. When I say the fifth word, what we're talking about here is the Greek language in which Peter was originally written. And it literally says, Peter, word one, an apostle, word two, of Jesus, word three, Christ, word four, to the elect ones. One word, the fifth word. This is Peter announcing himself in a way that I hope you now love. Not as Simon the denier of Jesus Christ, but as, the, as Peter the apostle of Jesus Christ. And the very first thing he does, before he says hello, before he asks them how they're doing, before he's even wished them grace and peace, is to give them a name. To give them a label. To give them an identity as elect ones. Now the word elect itself simply means chosen. And we see that throughout uh, chapter 2 in fact. If you look at verse 4 of chapter 2. We see Jesus referred to as being chosen and precious. That word chosen is the word elect. In verse 6 of chapter 2 again we read of Jesus as a cornerstone who is chosen and precious, chosen being the word elect. Verse 9 of chapter 2, we read of ourselves being a chosen race, an elect race. The term itself simply means to be chosen. And so uh, Peter begins this letter and he says, I want you to understand, amidst all that you're going through, amidst all the circumstances, amidst everything that you have to face on a day-by-day basis, that you are defined not by your rejection, but by your election. That is your fundamental identity. Now, Peter, remember last week we were saying he's a guy who um, he gets excited, he gets animated, he talks quickly, he doesn't necessarily think things through. Well, we get a sense of that here in the text. Not that he's not thought it through, but that he's getting excited and he's getting animated because he's not content just to tell us that we've been chosen, not content just to tell us that we're elect, but he goes on to kind of magnify our understanding of what that means. And he does that in verse 2 in three different ways. Do you see it? He says we've been chosen, number one, according to the foreknowledge of God. Chosen, number two, in the sanctification of the Spirit. And then chosen, number three, for obedience to Jesus Christ. What is Peter trying to communicate to us here? 
First of all, I think we can see that he's trying to communicate to us uh, through the words that we've, been, that we've been chosen in accordance with the foreknowledge of God that God's choosing of us, God's love for us is an eternal love. An eternal love. We sometimes don't quite catch the sense of that in our English translation because when we hear the word foreknowledge, we tend to think of it that kind of God knew something was going to happen. Like he predicted the future or he just knew how things would play out. But that's really not what the term means in the Bible. In the Bible, to to, to know something becomes an, an idiom for intimate love of that thing. To know something is an idiom for having intimate love. Very clear example is Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. Flick back there if you'd like, but there we read, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore him a son. You think, that was an intense conversation, right? (laughs) I need to work on my listening skills, clearly, right? Um, I've never known anyone that well, right? Obviously, known being used as an idiom for intimate love. And so it is here in 1 Peter, that we have been chosen according to the forelove of God the Father. Peter is saying exactly the same thing that Paul says in Ephesians 1 verse 4 when he says that God the Father chose us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world. Before the foundation of the world? The scriptures teach us that before there were sun, moon, stars, forests, river, glades, before there was activity and civilization and and energy, before anything had been cast into being by God's divine imagination, he had you in his heart. And he set his love upon you. We sometimes think of this like... um, you know, in the, the glories of pregnancy, and only the father refers to it as the glories of pregnancy, okay? In the harsh reality of pregnancy. Um, in the glories of pregnancy, as a parent, you feel like you're, you start to bond with this child. Perhaps you name them. You start to talk to them. Remember doing that? Um, some parents get all crazy and start playing like Mozart to them and you know that kind of thing and you, you, you love this child though they're not yet born you, you love them and in a similar greater way before this world was born God's imagination was pregnant with love for you for love from all eternity past that's the basis for his choice that he loves you second thing Peter tells us to kind of expand and unpack our understanding of election is that we've been chosen yes with an eternal love according to the foreknowledge of God but secondly with an unconditional love in the sanctification of the Spirit. What does this mean? Well, sanctification is simply a long word that means to, to make holy or more literally to be set apart. So the question comes, okay, what is it that has set you apart to be chosen by God? 
What, what has happened that you have been put in this category as chosen by him? What were the requirements? What were the provisos? What were the stipulations? How did you behave, perform, achieve in order to be chosen by God? And the answer comes back, you did nothing. The answer comes back, this choice is not on the basis of anything you have done, but rather in the sanctification of the Spirit. Not on the basis of what you have done, but on the basis of what the Spirit has done in you. David sometimes gives this illustration. He says, imagine that um, five of your friends are, are, are going to rob a bank. You're like, David, you have weird friends, right? Um, and you say to them, you know, this, this is a terrible idea. You really need to not do this. Uh, you, it's not going to work out well. You're going to get caught. You're going to be sent to jail. Okay? And they turn and say to you, this is a great idea. Okay? We're not going to get caught. We're going to get wealthy. We're geniuses. Okay? So on the morning of the day of the crime, you follow them down. Four of them walk in, and on his way in, you tackle the fifth one to the ground. The rest commit the crime, are caught, imprisoned. The one is saved. Why? On the basis of what you did for it. And so it is in the sanctification of the Spirit. Why are we saved? Not on the basis of what we have done, but on the basis of what he has done for us. It's almost like you're tackled by the Spirit. (laughs) Tackled by the Spirit that you might be saved. His love is not conditioned upon what you do for him, but upon what he has done for you. That's the kind of election we have. That's the kind of chosenness we have. An eternal love according to foreknowledge. And then an unconditional love in the sanctification of the Spirit. Third thing we learn from this text about our chosenness comes in the last words of verse 2 where we read of his animating love. Eternal, unconditional, and animating. Chosen how? For obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling in his blood. Key word there, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling in with his blood. Um, huge misunderstanding over what Christianity is centrally and primarily about. Huge misunderstanding in our culture and in, in many of our churches. Really where Christianity is seen as a form of behavior modification, a sin management program that will keep you out of God's eternal timeout. We say, no, Christianity is primarily about what God has done for us with his eternal, unconditional love. And only in light of that does it then have implications for our behavior. Of course it has implications for our behavior. Of course we should be what? Obedient to Jesus Christ. But the order here is important. You have been chosen. You have had this love set upon you in order that you might be obedient. In other words, it's God's love that not just motivates, but actually gives you the capacity to obey. There's no way you can obey enough in order to earn love. The order is hugely important. It's his love that animates our obedience as we walk in the newness of life that he offers us with forgiveness of sins. And so it's only in light of his love for you and the work of the Spirit in you that you're able to put behind you those destructive tendencies, those harmful addictions, those character flaws that just beset your life unto this point. Try change them in your own strength to earn the approval of God and you will never succeed. Receive the love of Christ in your heart. Be animated by his goodness to you. And moment by moment, 
He'll transform you. And so Peter comes to us and says, the world may reject you, but to me, the Lord says, you're chosen. With an eternal love, an unconditional love, an animating love, chosen and precious to me. In 2013, it happened. There was a couple whose hearts were moved by the Lord to approach RCE and find if they had a need for, for a home to take a child. They met Emilian and they looked past irrecoverable to see excellence. And they took him home as their own and they loved him. You go to Emilian's house as I was able to do in the May of this year and you shake the hand of a lean 16 year old who smiles and looks you in the eye after lunch he kisses his mother on the cheek and he runs outside to finish up working on, on his bike he had a, a puncture and a tire and he was, he was fixing it after that he came back inside and he was helping his wee brother build a train set In the midst of play, mum called with a a, a tone and voice that though translated I really understood and she was saying to him, hey, time to go to your room and finish your homework. Why? Because he's about to graduate high school on grade. Turns out that being chosen changes everything. Being chosen changes everything. And that's why Peter begins this letter in this somewhat strange way. That's what motivates him to begin his discussion of gospel identity with this idea of being elect, with this idea of being chosen. Because he wants his first readers and he wants us to understand that we may have grown up feeling rejected. We may have lived a life where we felt more rejected. We may live in a culture that holds out the, the fear of rejecting us. And yet in the midst of all of that, the fundamental meaning of your life, your fundamental name, your fundamental label, your fundamental identity is not that you've been rejected. The fundamental meaning of your life Your fundamental name, that fundamental label, the fundamental identity of those beloved in Christ is that you have been chosen. Chosen. And being chosen changes everything. It changes everything. It changes everything at home. It changes everything on the playground. It changes everything in the office. It changes everything in the culture at large where we live not with a present awareness of the fear of rejection, but the present awareness of the pleasure he takes in us in the gospel. Last week, sermon in a sentence was, you're beloved in Jesus Christ. God loves you. This week, it's even simpler. The gospel has given you a new name, and your name is chosen. Let's pray together. Father, it's 
popular in church life today to avoid the doctrine of election. Perhaps if we ignore it, it, it might go away. But apparently Peter didn't get the memo because he starts with it. He leads with it in order to impress upon his readers and to impress upon ourselves that our primary identity is found in being chosen by you, chosen with an eternal, unconditional, animating love. Father, I pray that we would be more and more a people who find their primary identity in this gospel and in this grace, less controlled by our own experiences, less controlled by our own culture, more controlled by you and all you've done for us in your son. Thank you for these moments of reflection. We're grateful in Jesus' name. Amen.